We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Hey, what's up, Roto-Grinders? Welcome to Sharp DFS Analysis here on Roto-Grinders.com. I'm Chris Tremino here with Warren Sharp and Chris Raybon, and we're going over week eight in the NFL. Uh, if you struggled with your DFS lineups in past, and this is the first time you're listening to the show, first of all, welcome. Second of all, just know that we're going to dive deep into Vegas-driven and analytics-driven analysis of the week to come, try to help you look at things from a different perspective when it comes to NFL DFS. Uh, first, let's go to Chris Raybon from 4 for 4. Chris, what's going on? What's going on, Chris? What's going on, Warren? Excited to uh, be here for week eight. We're already at the midpoint of the season. Things are going fast. If you're listening to what we've kind of been going on this show, several weeks we've had some amazing plays. I think last week pretty much everybody here was all about Zeke Elliott, and that was thanks to some great stats and analytics we got from Warren Sharp. Warren, what's happening? Hey, how's it going, guys? Um, yeah, got that one was a good hit. You know, we're not going to hit them all, but uh, that certainly was uh, was one that – would help help pretty much everybody who uh, threw them in their lineups. Nope. Sometimes we're on Dave Njoku and sometimes we're on Zeke. And like you said, <laughs> can't hit them all, but when they hit, sometimes they hit big. And that's one where 
kind of, you know, collecting on all this analytical research that we're doing throughout the week. Uh, week number eight is, is interesting uh, as far as DFS is concerned. Some of the slates are different on a side-by-side basis. There's fewer games uh, to take on, and that means more detail that we can get into when it comes to our individual research, you know, per, per game when it comes to time available. And one of the things that I think gets kind of overlooked when it comes to evaluating players is actually evaluating the team tendency and identity as a whole, looking at what the coach's tendency is from a play call perspective and from a personnel usage perspective. And Warren, I heard some great stuff from you throughout the season, really, about how coaching can affect play calling and the effectiveness of our players, despite how good or bad they may be, actually. Uh, when you take a look at the idea of coaching tendency, what are some things you look at? And do you have any examples uh, from this season you could point to where this has been, you had an effect on a player? Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly you're handicapping the coaches as much as you're handicapping the, the players and the teams, you know. Um, it's up to the player to execute it, but it's up to the coach to put them in that situation to execute it. And you have to have some level of confidence that they're going to do what you anticipate. So you're, there's a lot of handicapping there, but in terms of tendencies, absolutely. I mean, uh, you can look at it from the defensive perspective, like what defenses have problems, but so those are tendencies, but offensively, certainly teams do certain things. They like to throw the ball to the running backs more, throw the ball to the tight ends more. Um, so there's a lot of analysis of tendencies um, but one of the things that I've noticed, for instance, I did a little bit of research into what exactly is going on with these Atlanta Falcons. You know, they're, they're having a tremendous problem this season actually executing. And when you dive into it, which I did uh, because I wanted to figure out what was going on using some of the analytics that I have from Sharp Football Stats, the run game is not the issue. The run game is actually as, if not slightly better, in terms of efficiency as compared to last year. And then I saw some stats that were posted by like NFL research where they looked at, you know, what was the overall run rates and tendencies to target uh, Julio Jones and things like that. And they found that this year, Steve Sarkeesian, very similar to last year with Kyle Shanahan, but you need to go beyond like the surface level. I mean, that's the beauty of analytics. That's the beauty of research is we don't have to stop right where, you know, everybody else would stop. We can continue to dive deeper. And what I found was, the Atlanta Falcons last season had a great strategy from which to target Julio Jones, the number one wide receiver. What they decided to do was go overboard on targeting him on first down because that's the easiest down to target a number one wide receiver. If you think about it, that's the down the defense has no idea what you're going to do. They could be playing pass. They could be playing run. Um, they could be spreading it out. So they don't really know exactly how you're going to attack them what better time than to go after your number one wide receiver as opposed to on third down where if you're not in third and short, you're going to be throwing it. I mean, that's like 90% of the time, if not more. So the defense knows you're going to be throwing it. They can easily double Julio, roll coverage over top of him, try to make your life more difficult to get the ball to Julio. So what Kyle Shanahan intentionally would do is on third downs, he would actually, I mean, maybe this was coaching to Matt Ryan or this was play design, they would actually throw the ball a little bit more to their other wide receivers. Julio's target rate on third down was significantly lower than the 29% target share that he uh, commanded on first down. And, you know, right now, Steve Sarkeesian, the completely opposite way. He's targeting Julio about an equal level on all the downs. Um, He's not targeting Julio deep enough down the field. That's the other thing that Kyle Shannon was doing is targeting Julio deeper down the field. And in addition, they're not spreading the targets. They're not spreading the targets depth-wise down the field enough. 
Uh, they don't throw the ball very deep down the field. And when they do, it's mostly to Julio or Gabriel. Last year, they were getting Sanu more involved deep down the field and Aldrick Robinson involved more deep down the field. They don't have a guy like that this year that they're going after, and they're not incorporating Sanu deep down the field. Um, but what I found more than anything that's making the biggest difference in terms of their on-field production is their lack of aggressiveness on first down. They were far more aggressive with their passing and depth of target on first down last year than they were this year, especially, you know, focusing more on Muhammad, uh, sorry, Julio Jones this year. They're doing that a lot less this year. They did a lot more last year. So there's some definite things that we can take away from that. And then one more I'll leave you with. Um, the unfortunate issue of the play calling out in LA with the Chargers. Talked about this ad nauseum in the off season in my 2017 football preview book that I put out, how the, the Chargers need to target Hunter Henry. They need to go after Hunter Henry a lot more, let Gates get the record and then start giving the ball to Hunter Henry early and often because he is the horse from which this team will be pulled. This cart will be pulled based on the back of Hunter Henry's efficiency. He's not going to get the most shares, but his efficiency is by far the best on this team. It was last year, and guess what? It is this year. But for some reason, the team was targeting other players in the first few weeks of the season. They rarely got the ball to him. Since they've upped his production the last few weeks, they've, they're 3-0. and They haven't lost a game when targeting Hunter Henry as much and getting him involved in deep passing and everything like that. It's noticeable from your DFS rosters and, and lineups that you're making. He's much more involved in the lineups, uh, sorry, in the game plans the last three weeks. Now, the problem is in terms of tendencies, they have a tendency to run the ball too much on first down. I think this is a big factor in this game. Uh, so this is something we can apply to this very game against the Patriots. Their rushes yeah. with Melvin Gordon on first down are terrible. And they continue to run the ball to Melvin Gordon on first down and get zero production. People have asked me on Twitter, why don't you like Melvin Gordon? He's putting up points for me on my fantasy. I don't like Melvin Gordon because he's inefficient as hell when he's running the ball. He's a great receiver and a target out of the backfield. But you hand the ball to this guy's belly on first down, and guess what? You're going to wind up in second and long nine times out of ten. It's just the way that this guy is when he runs the football, especially on first down. If you get behind the sticks against the Patriots, especially this defense, this defense is not as good as it looked last week against the Falcons. That being said, they're not terrible if they get you into third and long or third and medium. There are, there are defenses that are worse than that. So if you're, going to get, if you're going to lose yardage on first down, you're going to be in, a big trouble, in big trouble going up there into New England and trying to beat Tom Brady and the Patriots who, guess what, are probably not going to be punting the ball very much to you. And as a result, you cannot afford to be punting the ball to them. And I'm just worried that they're going to continue to stick with Melvin Gordon on first down and all of that inefficiency that comes with that instead of throwing the ball more. So there's a couple of, especially on first down, the Falcons and the L.A. Chargers, two teams that are good overall offenses but are struggling on first down due to some of their play selection. Yeah, and it's not that the Falcons just don't throw it all on first down. It's just the types of play you mentioned, the depth of target and who they're targeting on first down uh, that makes a difference. And that's exclusively play calling. That's exclusively, you know, play design. That's, you know, that's a philosophical way that the new coordinators are calling the game for the Falcons as compared to what Kyle Shanahan was doing. So that's a great, a fantastic point. I loved it. I'm glad you brought it up again. And I also like the Hunter Henry point there as far as how they improve their success uh, with incorporating him into the game more. And, of course, I think everyone at this point has seen Melvin Gordon struggle 
uh, with his yards per carry average. And uh, when they run on first down and get into uh, second and long, third and long situations, how that offense could struggle more. So hopefully uh, they'll find some of the analytics and maybe change the way they do things. But for now, a tendency to keep in mind as we look to that game in New England. Now, Chris, when you take a look at how you kind of view coaching tendency, play call tendency to affect your DFS analysis, what sort of things are you, you know, weighing heavier than others? Well, I like to look at what I think will happen in the run game early in the game, because at the end of the day, the average NFL play is a pass. Teams pass about two thirds of the time. Overall, I think the passing games are generally more accounted for uh, both in terms of the lines and just how we think about the game. But I think you're going to start, you can really see some variance in terms of both in how a team performs on offense in the running and the passing game based on what happens in the running game early on. So I like to first look at, you know, what teams like to do in the first half running the football. If they are a run first team in the first half, then I say, okay, well, it, can they be successful? Do they have the personnel to be successful with the running back, the O-line? Uh, and is the defense vulnerable to the run? Because what happens is that if the team is able to be successful in the running game, that can change a lot in the game in terms of the passing game, especially due to something like the play action game. So, I, so I'll give you an example that I think um, is probably still somewhat fresh in people's minds. A couple of weeks ago, the Arizona Cardinals, their first game with Adrian Peterson, they stomped or not stomped because the Bucks came back, but they put up about 38 points on the Bucks. And what happened with that Arizona passing game, Carson Palmer put up some big numbers. Larry Fitz put up some big numbers was that Arizona for the first time, essentially since week one had a threat of a running game with Adrian Peterson in that game. And they, a, a bunch of completions, I think Carson Palmer incompleted maybe one or two passes in the whole first half of the first three drives and threw for like two touchdowns. And it was because the, the defense had to respect the play action. So you have certain quarterbacks and offenses that really depend on the play action pass. So I'll give you an example from this week, you know, Deshaun Watson, he has eight touchdowns this season. Eight of his touchdowns are on the play action pass. That's most in the NFL. Houston, for all the numbers Deshaun Watson has put up, uh, people might not realize this, but Houston is a very run-heavy team. In their first half run rate, they're 54% pass, so they're 46% run in the first half. That's the third highest run rate in the league. Now, we know Seattle struggled to defend the run earlier in the year. It's gotten a little better, but that's going to go a long way toward determining what happens in this game because a lot of times we look at certain games and we see okay, well, you know, these two teams, it, it kind of favors the run maybe a little bit. And we think of it as kind of a, a, a low over-under game, a low total game. Maybe you want to bet the under or you want to kind of fade the passing games. But what can happen is if the running game is working, especially for a team where the running game might not always be working, you're going to also see the passing game succeed. And if that happens, then that can actually push the game over the total, depending on then, you know, how good is the team's defense and how good is the other offense and whatnot. But if you kind of factor in what can happen um, early on in the run game, that can go a long way toward, uh, you know, kind of seeing how the game script will play out. Another example is Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins, four touchdowns, no interceptions on the play action, 11.7 uh, percentage points better in terms of completion rate off the play action and uh, 4.2 more yards per attempt on the play action. So, if Washington can get their run game going, um, you know, that, that can really help Kirk Cousins, even though he has these uh, offensive line issues, 
Um, you know, if, if he can get that run game going against Dallas, um, and it's been a struggle at times, but Dallas ranks uh, 31st, second to last in success rate on run defense. So um, that'll whether the, the Redskins can get their run game going early in the game, I think will go a long way toward that game kind of turning into it, the shootout that, that we really expect it to be because if it's just if they can if Dallas just has to kind of uh, line up and and, and and they know a pass is coming I mean their pass rush has been very good Washington's not really getting the ball down the field and Washington as I mentioned has some uh, offensive linemen banged up Brandon Sheriff I don't think he's going to go uh, Trent Williams I know he's banged up in and out of the game last week so um, if you kind of look at how that run game is going to start out and, and what what the effects of that will be, the butterfly effects, I think it can kind of give you a little more insight into whether a game will go over and under and how it will play out. Yeah, fantastic points. And, you know, and you mentioned some teams uh, that have heavy first-half run ratios. You can find that information on sharpfootballstats.com if you go to the run situational run-pass ratios and, and select a first half. You can see which teams are running and passing heavier in the first half as opposed to later in the game. And we'll talk about another team that's very run-heavy here in a minute when it comes to the first half. When you take, it's time to talk about the games, guys. So when you take a look at what's happening from a Vegas perspective uh, this week, uh, we don't have, uh, once again, a ton of this massive total games. You know, we're looking at the Chargers, New England, Dallas, Washington, Chicago, New Orleans as, you know, three of the higher total games of the week. As far as low total games are concerned, Minnesota, Cleveland, Carolina, Tampa Bay, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Houston, Seattle, kind of a lower total game. You know, I, I stretched on some of those, but just basically not a ton of, you know, massive projected Vegas totals this week. So, Warren, when you take a look at a game you think they might be off on a little bit from a total perspective, where are you going first? Well, um, you know, I've, I've listened to – I listen to some, you know, podcasts out there during the week. Um, not all of them, of course, because I'm pretty busy, but there are a few that I catch, and it's – it isn't missed on people, you know, one total in particular that has moved uh, a significant amount um, since as compared to where the lines open. And that's this Houston Seattle game. And um, I will tell you that that line, obviously it opened at a couple spots at 42 and a half, but most of the spots were around 43. And this was Monday. Um, now, usually I don't want to fire on games as early as Monday because um, I like to I like to start firing the board on Tuesdays. That's generally the day that I get started. Monday night football ends the prior week, so I won't really fire as often on Mondays because the market isn't stable enough. Like it doesn't have enough. There's not enough volume to allow you to bet at a high enough rate that you would want to um, necessarily. But there are a few a few uh, select times when I will go early, and this is one of those. I like the over on this Seattle Houston game. I put that out on Monday at 43 and I mean, pretty instantly it moved up to 44, 44 and a half, 45. And now of course it, it's gotten all the way up to 46. Now the reason I'll share that uh, with you guys is because it's so far off where the number was. And I gave this out to my clients on Monday. So, you know, if, if there are people like, well, I can't do anything with it because the number is too far off. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a play for my clients. It's not necessarily, for you guys listening here, but I'll give you some advice on how you can get on this play, even though the line is currently where it is. And number two, you know, if you are interested on in getting on the board before these lines go berserk like this, then you know where to find me over at Sharper Ball Analysis. But I will tell you with this game, if you agree with some of the stuff that I have to say here, 
just wait because there are people in the market who don't care what the game might do. They only care what the odds maker put the game out at. And they believe that that's the right number. That's the best number. And so if they find a game like this, that's three points different. Now it's 45 and a half to 46 at some spots. And the opener was 43. They will bet the under regardless. And they're betting enough money because they're playing middles and, and they're just looking for numbers like this that are far off that they do this professionally and they make a little bit here and there and they scrape it together. And at the end of the year, they might have a little bit of money, but they're not looking at it from the position that, Hey, I love the under, this is like a hard nose under play. They're just looking at value because they think the odds maker is always correct. This line will drop. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. This thing is not closing at 46. This thing is probably closing below 45 is my best guess, even though I think that's completely wrong. And so I would wait until Sunday morning and go the opposite of the under money that's going to come in on this game. Um, just based on my years of experience, I can tell you that's exactly what's going to happen here. Now, why do I like the over? Well, this Houston Texans defense is kind of like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They are not what they appear to be. They look like on the surface that they've got good metrics over the course of the year, but they, they played only really two good offenses this year. They got destroyed by both of them. The New England Patriots rolled up and down the field on these guys. I think Tom Brady had like over, what is it, 300-some yards of uh, passing, posted five touchdowns, 11-point-something 11 11 yards per attempt, five touchdowns, no interceptions, and a 146 pass rating. He annihilated them. Now, Russell Wilson is not the, this team, but I'll talk about them in a second. The next good offense that they played was the Kansas City Chiefs. On nine of their 10 drives, they started in terrible field position, but on nine of their 10 drives, the Chiefs drove the ball all the way inside the Houston Texans 35-yard line. On, I think, seven of those nine, they drove it inside the 25. They, had a, they obviously posted points with ease. They punted once the entire game. And that, both of those games were started by J.J. Watt and Whitney Merciless. The team does not have those guys. We mentioned to you before, uh, the team does not have those guys. They played against the Cleveland Browns the week before their bye. Cleveland was starting Kevin Hogan. This is a game that I like the over on. And it ended up hitting thanks to Kevin Hogan scoring a touchdown very late for us. However, so, so that play ended up coming through. But Kevin Hogan was terrible in that game. The passing locations where he was throwing the ball were ridiculous. All these boundary passes, like five, six, seven yards down the field at the extreme boundaries where there was absolutely no room for error. They wouldn't attack the middle of the field. It was a joke of a gameplay from Hugh Jackson. It was executed poorly uh, by Hogan. So it was just bad overall, and this was a bad team. But guess what they did in that game just to illustrate how bad this Houston Texans defense was? Overall, 43% of the Browns' plays were successful in that game. The Cleveland Browns, that was their second-best rate of the entire season. Isaiah Crowell, in the midst of a really bad season for him in this rushing offense, averaged 6.1 yards per carry. Now, if you've listened to me in the past talk about Crowell, it's been these big explosive plays. And so his average might look good, but his success rate is like 40% because he's busting out a couple of huge 50 to 60 yard runs possibly. And so it's screwing up the yards per carry, which is why I don't even look at and, and focus on yards per carry, average yards, even though that's what like all the other handicappers out there do, because I want to care. I care about success rate. I want to know on a per play basis, exactly how successful are you in terms of gaining the required yards that you need to go. And, but I will say, Isaiah Crowell, not the case. 
his 6.1 yards per carry also had a 64% success rate for this Cleveland Browns rushing offense. The Seattle Seahawks are going to have a field day against this defense, in my opinion. Russell Wilson's going to have a ton of success. Um, and then on the reverse side, yeah, I think it's going to be a slightly down day for Deshaun Watson. I could tell you that you know, there are some guys out there who are buying Houston plus six in this spot. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to exceed expectations. I really love Deshaun Watson and what he's been doing, but I won't, I'll be the first to admit it's come against some more inferior defenses, and Seattle is a great defense playing at home. Um, I think that they are really strong. They're going, Houston's going to have to get the benefit of the run game. And I will tell you, there's a strength on weakness. When Houston runs behind their left tackle, that is a definite weakness of this Seattle Seahawks run defense is allowing larger gains behind the offense's left tackle. Houston is really good at doing that. So I'm excited to see that. That's also, they've got Dwayne Brown back, their star tackle. He makes a huge difference on that offensive line. First time this season that he's going to be playing for them. So I'm interested to see how that goes. But essentially, to wrap it up, I think Houston's offense is going to be able to do just enough to help this game go over the total. But I think it's going to be driven there by Seattle and by the fact that I'm really down on this Houston Texans defense. Yeah, so a couple of things here. First, Seattle, one of the most pass-heavy teams in the first half, uh, which could help increase the pace of this game early, hopefully drive some of that scoring. Secondly, Russell Wilson, one of the most pressured QBs in the league. If you go to rotorgrinders.com uh, and you're a premium member, you can see some stats from playerprofiler.com that shows Russell Wilson been highly pressured this year, yet he's still finding success under pressure. And, uh, you know, you've got a guy like Doug Baldwin, the most targeted receiver in this offense, uh, starting to get more targets and look like the player we think he's going to be, probably matched up uh, some percentage of the time with Kareem Jackson, a matchup I think he can win. I just think that everything Warren said is, is completely awesome related to this game. Uh, I'm definitely on both the Seattle offensive players, maybe in some GPP lineups, I'll take some Seattle defense and absolutely love to take Warren. Uh, hopefully, I will tell you, I'll add one other thing real quick. This, I, I'm not a trends guy, so this is just like some filler, but uh, just some, some side garnish, like a little bit of parsley on, the, on your steak. Teams that have played the Seattle Seahawks since 2013 with an extra week to prepare, those games are 9-0 and to the over, going over by an average of 10 points per game. And what that tells me is teams know heading into a game with Seattle, they're going to have to get creative offensively. And you know that Bill O'Brien is spending time this bye week getting more things in there. Deshaun Watson was not the starter week one. He wasn't worked into the offense until after the week three uh, sorry, after the week two game up in Cincinnati. So this guy is his first chance to take starters reps for the entire time. He says he was studying. Who cares? I mean, let's hope that he was studying in the bye week. But they're getting back with practices this start of this past week. And let's see what types of wrinkles they incorporate into their game. But that is something interesting to note. Yeah, awesome stuff, Warren. Now, Chris, uh, it's your turn to take a crack at what Vegas has put out there from a line perspective and give us a game you think might be off. Yeah, I'm looking at that over-under in the Saints and the Chicago Bears game in New Orleans. It's around 47 and a half as we record this. And I think that might be a little high just because, you know, we talked about this earlier, but you kind of got to look at what teams want to do and then how that will affect the rest of the game. So we know Chicago, they only threw seven passes last week. Uh, the last two weeks, they have just a 14% pass rate in the first half. That's absolutely um, ridiculous, really. Uh, that's, you know, that's unheard of, uh, last in the league by a mile. New Orleans is actually 28th in first half pass rate um, at 49%. 
Um, and just so you see, that's like triple, almost triple uh, the more than triple what the Bears are doing. But what, what's going to happen here is the Bears, they're not really running to set up the pass. They're running just because they want to run and they want to keep running all game. So, you know, while I think people might look at this line and say, you know, see Chicago and not a very good team and they see New Orleans at home, you know, what Drew Brees has done at home over these past few years, averaging, I think about 350 yards or something like that, close to three touchdowns per game in New Orleans and think, okay, this is kind of a game, you know, it's under, it's under 50 already. Maybe um, you, you think there might be some offensive fireworks in the passing game, but because the bears like to run and want to keep running, New Orleans is actually not very good against the run. They've, they're 30th in run defense success rate. So, you know, Chicago hasn't been great on offense running the ball necessarily. It's just a high, a lot of high volume in most cases, except for the, uh, a couple of few select spots against Pittsburgh and in the end of that game uh, in Baltimore. But um, I think you're going to see both teams kind of running the ball and the, the, the game script is going to favor the running backs. And what that could do is that's going to probably blunt some of the passing game numbers for guys like Drew Brees, Michael Thomas. And um, we've already seen Drew Brees' yardage is down this season pretty significantly compared to what we're used to. And that's uh, in large part due to the fact that the Saints defense, you know, it, despite their struggles against the run, um, they, they've actually been pretty good overall uh, against the pass which which helps them a lot. They're sixth in pass defense DVOA. So, you know, if Chicago, whether Chicago's running and having success or not, you know, when they do try to pass, it's going to be somewhat difficult. Um, New Orleans likes to run a lot in the first half. You could see a kind of a, a really probably lower scoring first half where um, Chicago might not pass until, you know, wait in the second half when, when they really have to, depending on how much success New Orleans has. So I don't think this is necessarily a kind of breeze eruption spot, a kind of place where you, you want to go to Michael Thomas. Um, I mean, we do the schedule adjusted fantasy points a lot over at four for four. Chicago is ranked seventh best in terms of overall uh, offensive schedule adjusted points allowed. And then they rank ninth versus quarterbacks and fourth versus wide receivers. So this defense of Chicago with Vic Fangio at the helm is actually a pretty solid defense. I know they don't have a lot of big names, especially in the secondary, but they've held up pretty well and they limit opponents play volume and they play these really um, kind of run heavy scripts that, that shorten games. So I don't think, um, I don't necessarily think we're going to see this game hit, you know, 48 points unless some really fluky things happen with defensive scores um, in this game, but I don't think it's necessarily like a 350 yard, uh, eruption spot for Drew Brees. If, the uh, if it used to be Coors Field down there, what is it now? If we're talking about them being a run heavy team, you know, which field is it? Is this like uh, San Francisco now or what, what's going on down there in San, in uh, New Orleans these days? The f- reason I mentioned that is you, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. New Orleans has been more run heavy than we've seen them in quite some time, uh, this season. And I think that this particular matchup, as you stated, is going to lend well to them staying with that trend. So if you're looking for an offensive explosion, as Chris said, maybe not the spot to target here in New Orleans, Chicago. Uh, you know, you have a strong take on that Seattle game as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I pretty much am on board with everything Warren said. I'm probably even a little more bullish on Seattle um, on their defense than him. I mean, one of the reasons, you know, Warren already mentioned all of the the important points about the the Seattle offense. I love Russell Wilson this week. Loved him last week against the Giants, and I don't think um, many people did. But, you know, quickly on Russell Wilson, I mean, 
because they have no run game, he's accounted for 78% of the team's offensive yardage and 92% of their touchdowns, 12 out of their 13 touchdowns. So, I mean, you know, Houston's 18th in run defense success rate, 20th in pass defense success rate since week three. Um, and they played Jacksonville and Cincinnati under Zampezi um, in the first two weeks. So, um, you can't really, you got to kind of throw those games out in terms of if you're comparing it to the Seattle offense. But on defense, you know, I think Deshaun Watson, you have to kind of look at his strength of schedule for context here because, you know, Seattle is first in pass defense success rate this season. Now, in Deshaun Watson's four big games where he put up huge monster stats, weeks three through six, he faced New England, which ranks 31st in pass defense success rate. Tennessee, which ranks uh, 21st, Kansas City, which, which ranks 12th, but has just been bleeding points um, in the passing game and in fantasy points in the passing and production in the passing game. They give up a ton of air yards. And then Cleveland, which ranks 26th. So you have three below average pass defenses and one that gives up a lot of production, even though they're slightly above average in success rate. And all four of those teams in terms of schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to quarterbacks rank 22nd or below. So in those four games, Deshaun Watson averaged 8.4 yards in attempt, 3.5 to 1 TD to interception ratio per game, and 267 and a half yards per game. Um, in the one game where he played a better defense, that where he started, that was week two against the Bengals. They ranked third in pass defense success rate, so right up there with Seattle. And of course, this was Watson's first start, so you can't necessarily say um, you know he hasn't improved since then. But in that game against this tough defense, only 5.2 yards per attempt and 125 yards passing, no touchdown. So, you know, now you're coming into a situation where yeah, I know he's had a week off to prepare, but this is a situation where, I mean, this is something that he hasn't really faced before in terms of uh, defensive quality since week two where, where he didn't really do well outside of making a few plays with his legs. He's going into the link. Um, this is tough. I know, you know, we kind of thought it was going to be tough for him to go into Foxborough, but of course, you know, that Patriots defense was struggling. The link is a totally different situation with a good pass defense. Um, and, and again, I think this is a situation where um, I know me and Warren talked about this a few weeks ago when you had, you had Jared Goff, and he was really having a lot of success up until um, coming into that game against Seattle. And even though that game was at, in L.A., um, I, I expressed some concern to Warren about, you know, Todd Gurley and just the, the overall offense of the Rams because this is the first time they're facing a good pass defense. So even though Seattle's run defense hadn't been that good, um, you know, if, 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 if you're still, if you're in third and six or five, even if you're in a manageable third down, if you have an elite pass defense, you're still not necessarily going to convert that. Um, so I think this is going to be a, this could be a problem spot a little bit for, for Houston. And um, I, I do like that Seattle defense on DraftKings where they're only 3,200. Um, I think that's a very fair price to pay for, for, a, for a favorite. And I think um, because of the fact that I think me and Warren both like the Seattle offense in this game, I actually like that for my defensive plays. We talked about this a few weeks ago with the Saints, how I liked the Saints in that time. They, they scored, I think, 33 fantasy points against the, the Lions. And the reason being is that when you have these defensive special teams, a high-scoring game is not the worst thing because what that does, is, that essentially makes – the opposing team pass a lot. And that's where you're going to get most of your defensive production, pick sixes, sacks, sack fumbles, um, and th interceptions, things of that nature. You're not really going to get a lot of defensive production out of a, a run heavy team. Um, it, you know, it, it, unless you're getting like a, a zero or a seven points allowed or something like that. Um, it, you, you might have that production one. And I think we saw that a little bit with the Minnesota defense last week where they were a very chalky defense and they kind of underperformed a little bit. You know, they had a good game, uh, in real life, but 
had five sacks, but because they gave up, I think, 16 points to garbage time touchdown at the end, um, and Baltimore is not really a very pass-heavy team anymore under Greg Roman. They kind of try to hide Joe Flacco a lot more, and they had no receivers. They ran the ball a lot, and therefore Minnesota didn't get a chance to put up a lot of production. I think um, Seattle's defense, if, if Seattle can score as much as we think they can against this decimated Houston defense without Merciless and Watt and whatnot, I think that's going to force Watts and the young quarterback into some mistakes, even if he also makes some brilliant plays. Yeah, according to Sports Info Solutions here on our uh, wide receiver cornerback, TorontoRoadRunners.com, uh, Seattle actually running a lot more man-to-man coverage than you would expect. They were previously a very heavy cover three type. In- that just tells me more aggression. More aggression means potentially more of the things we like uh, for fantasy in this matchup. So uh, I'm interested in this take here with Seattle defense for DFS purposes. Now, Warren, we've got a couple of big favorites this week. Uh, New Orleans included, Philadelphia, Cincinnati, New England, Seattle, Kansas City. You got any strong takes on any of these favorites? Um, yeah, sorry about that. My, you know, I just, I think that we can't overlook the Cincinnati Bengals offense in this spot against the Colts. Um, one of the reasons is actually weather. Um, the East Coast is going to be possibly getting a ton of rain and some winds. There's actually a, a fair number of games that are on the East Coast. I don't know if it's going to get up to New England uh, by 1 p.m. because that's what time that game kicks off Eastern. But, you know, the Dallas-Washington game is a game with a pretty high total out on the East Coast as well. So, and of course, San Francisco-Philadelphia is out there as well. So I think people need to be aware of weather, especially at this time of year, and winds especially. Those are harder to forecast, but take those into consideration. And one of the reasons why I'm saying that is because um, I don't necessarily like the Cincinnati Bengals against the spread. Like, I don't have any opinion whatsoever. I will tell you that the move from eight and a half up to 11 to 10 and a half, 11 was from sharper money. Um, but I personally was not on that move and I'm not on them at the current number at 10 and a half, 11, but this Colts defense is absurdly atrocious. I mean, it is a spectacle to behold how bad they are. Um, I was actually on the first half under when they played last week against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And my thought process there was you've got Jacksonville who does not have Leonard Fournette in the game. They're going to be less productive running the football, but they're still probably going to stick with the formula that has worked for them, which is to run the football with Chris Ivory instead of Leonard Fournette. And I didn't have a lot of confidence in the Colts offense doing anything against this defense because the Colts, they can't take advantage of the Jaguars defensive issues, which are the run game. So their passing game right into the teeth of the strength of the Jaguars was going to be a problem. So I thought the first half under was a pretty solid recommendation. And as it turns out, that, that ended up being an absolute nail biter. We ended up winning, but Jacksonville and, and Blake Bortles, look like Joe Montana against this defense. I mean, throwing the ball all over the field in the first half against this Colts defense could not be stopped throwing the football with these wide receivers and with Blake Bortles and with their lack of passing practice. They haven't really passed very much this year, obviously a little bit more than the Bears. Now we don't have to talk about, you know, the Jaguars being the team that doesn't throw the ball as much, but they still don't throw the ball very often, and yet they looked incredible. So I have no doubt that the Cincinnati Bengals offense, especially Andy Dalton, those receivers, A.J. Green, will have a pretty good day throwing the football against this defense. And then you've got the issues with, um, you know, the, the running back speaking up and demand – well, not demanding. I mean, he was just actually suggesting that he gets more touches. And, of course, he did really well in the first half against the Steelers. They didn't give him a single touch in the second half. 
I thought that was ridiculous by Marvin Lewis. I think that they should have given him more touches, but I don't know how well that's going to go over in terms of, uh, you know, telling your coach as a rookie, you know, give me more touches. And that's one of the reasons why we lost this game. So it'll be interesting to see how much they decide to run the ball here, but Andy Dalton is not going to have uh, a much easier time passing the football on a defense at home the rest of the season. And then you factor in that they just played a brutal game against a division rival last week, um, lost that game in need of a win, in need of feeling good about themselves. I think Dalton could have a pretty good game here uh, against the Indianapolis Colts. Yep, absolutely. DFS players should be all over this. If you're not, um, please, you know, check out 444.com, check out uh, Warren's site, check out Rotogrinders, because I think everybody at this point in time has found some way to like this game and Warren just delivering more heat onto that fire as far as, you know, going after guys like Dalton, A.J. Green, and, uh, and of course, uh, mentioning Marvin Lewis acting like Joe Mixon's dad. Going to sit him in the corner maybe this week a little bit. So the passing game, um, you know, could be in, some, uh, in, in for some good production here. We saw Blake Bortles out there last week making me look like a genius. Uh, but that's really more so just identifying that the Colts defense, just really bad defending against the pass. Chris, it's time to take a look at some offensive analytics that could help us get on players for week Number eight, and when you take a look at what's happening down there, weather aside uh, in Tampa, I think you got some stuff to say here about Carolina. Yeah, um, well, first let me talk about weather because I think it's, it is an important factor, and I think it, especially if you're, this is your first year playing DFS, you know, this is kind of the first time you're really going to be dealing with a lot of weather situations. I don't think there was many throughout the first seven weeks, maybe one here or there, but um, as Warren said, it's really the wind that you have to pay more of attention to, and it's wind gusts, particularly. Um, if you look back at, you know, there's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where they're posted, but um, if you kind of Google it, you can find some studies. I think there's some on Reddit and things like that. But um, weather studies in terms of how it affects fantasy production essentially found that it's really wind gusts um, approaching 15 miles per hour and beyond that uh, have a big effect on the passing games and whatnot. And that's because wind gusts are kind of unpredictable and they're kind of, you know, if you have just a steady wind, even if it's kind of blowing heavy, uh, it's easy for a quarterback to kind of adjust and kind of get that, you know, get a feel for how the wind is blowing and, and adjust their, their, their throws or a kicker to adjust their kicks. But a gust is kind of unpredictable. You know, you can throw a pass and a gust comes and kind of knocks it off course mid flight and things like that. Um, rain is not as big of a deal because uh, on the wet surface, whatever maybe upside can't is canceled out in terms of additional dropped passes or whatnot is kind of offset by the fact that offensive players know where they're going. Defensive players do not know where the offensive players are going. So offensive players have an advantage. So if there's any slippage um, that's always going to benefit the offensive players sometimes tremendously. I mean, if you have one-on-one -on -one coverage and a defender slips down, that's it. You know, that, that that's probably a touchdown. So um, I think it's, uh, I think the weather the, really you want to, uh, pay attention to the wind gusts um, more so for fantasy and not get overly concerned with some of the wet weather. Um, unless it gets, it's really going to be like some type of torrential downpour where you think teams could rain in the passing game. But that being said, um, in Tampa, I think that you do have to look at this uh, Carolina uh, wide receiver matchup against the Tampa Bay corner. So you have Kelvin Benjamin and Devin Funches. They are uh, both six foot five. Benjamin is 240 pounds. Funches, 230 pounds. And, they're going to be going up against a crew of cornerbacks in Tampa Bay that number one has been underperforming, really struggling this year. And number two, they're all just very small. So you have Brett Grimes, 5'9", and 180 pounds. Robert McClain, same exact height and weight. 
for, for him. And then Vernon Hargraves, who's been struggling uh, tremendously to the point where he's been benched essentially the last two weeks. He's only played in the nickel formation in the slot. Um, and he actually played better last week in the nickel, but um, he's six foot four and 200, uh, six feet, excuse me, and 204 pounds. So huge size advantage for the Carolina receivers. Tampa Bay ranks dead last in schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to the wide receiver position. No Tampa Bay corner is ranked higher than 70th in coverage grade by PFF. And on top of that, and I think this is a key thing too, especially when you have these big targets um, that, 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 may, that, that are kind of lumbering and slow. They're not going to win immediately at the line of scrimmage, but they do have the advantage in terms of down the field, contested catch, uh, um, you know, ability to win that. Tampa Bay has had no pass rush this year. They are last in sacks with seven. Their adjusted sack rate per pro football, um, per football outsiders, excuse me, is 3.2%. That's last in the league as well. So Cam Newton has thrown eight touchdowns and six interceptions when he's been in a clean pocket, only one touchdown, four picks under pressure. So in this game, I think, you know, regardless of the weather and whatnot, I think Cam Newton, you know, the, the NFL teams are going to have to pass regardless of, of what happens with the weather or whatnot. You know, you have to pass at some point. I think Cam Newton's going to have a lot of time in the pocket um, to hit these big targets. And I'm not sure that Tampa Bay is really going to have any answer to them. On top of that, Tampa Bay plays a lot of zone. I think that also tends to favor these big guys because they can kind of just, you know, some of these in-breaking routes and you can kind of throw over the head of, 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 of shorter linebackers or, and things of that nature. And on top of that, Brent Grimes and Robert McClain were not in practice um, on Wednesday. I'm looking, at the I'm looking at the Thursday report. I'm not sure if this is updated or not, but they, they weren't in practice. They're banged up. We don't know. Um, especially if McLean is going to play. I think he's in the concussion protocol. Um, Grimes, I think he's banged up, but he probably will go. But um, either way, that's going to potentially force them to either put Hargraves back on the outside where he struggled tremendously, or you're going to have to, you know, play, you know, more inexperienced players out there. And then on top of that, you have the, the, the issues in the secondary. TJ Ward is upset that, that he's not getting playing time. He's, they have like a three, four man rotation back there. No one's really playing too well. Um, it, it, for the safeties. So I, I think that um, there's, a, there's a really strong chance that, that Cam Newton and the, the, the Carolina passing game rebounds against this Bucks defense. And I think they'll be somewhat aggressive. Uh, and they, they, are, uh, they do slant run heavy in the first half through the Panthers and overall as well. But um, they've really struggled in the run game this year. And I think, you know, they're kind of on a little skid. They're, they haven't played well. And I think they're going to they're gonna come out with some aggression and attack these Tampa corners. I think we saw them mic'd up with Eli Manning a few weeks ago um, against the Buccaneers when, when that Giants game. And you hardly ever see Eli Manning really animated. And uh, they, they just caught him on the sideline talking to the Giants receivers and saying, hey, that number 28, which is Vernon Hargis, you know, we're going to go after his ass, all right? We're going we're gonna to go after him. And I think Carolina is going to come out and kind of, uh, kind of attack the, these smaller Tampa corners. Yeah, man. I think Grimes did miss practice on Thursday. I don't see anything on McLean, but I mean, regardless, I, I mean, I don't care if Brent Grimes plays like this matchup just does bode well for the Carolina Panthers passing attack. And like I said, weather aside now, Warren, then no weather to worry about in New Orleans, but uh, New Orleans defense might have to worry about something. Uh, what do you got here as far as analytics from an offensive perspective? Yeah, I think this is where we take into consideration, I think strength of schedule. Um, Look, Jordan Howard, he has had a tremendous season in terms of what his production is and what his performance is. But obviously, it's kind of like a tale of two seasons. You got with Trubisky and you've got with Glennon. And with Trubisky, 
this team has had to resort to a lot more gimmicks and uh, fewer pass attempts from the quarterback position. And, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's become like a laughing stock of the league between um, a lot of the analysts out there. It's like, well, what the hell are these guys going to do next? This is such a joke. This is like Tim Tebow's offense and John Fox was there too. And um, so it's, it's a lot of, a lot of fun and a lot of games, but here's the thing. Um, you know, I like to take it always at times. So I guess I contradict itself, but many times I take a, a um, contrarian perspective when I'm looking at games, because that's where you're going to find value. You're not going to find value going with the herd. And I look at it as the Chicago Bears have played three ridiculously good defenses with Trubisky there, um, especially against the pass. If you talk about the Baltimore Ravens, the Minnesota Vikings his first week there, and then, of course, the Carolina Panthers last week. Um, they have a lead over Carolina. They're winning the game. They're able to run the ball a little bit. I'm okay with not throwing the ball. I, I don't want my quarterback to give the other team the ball back. I don't want them to even attempt passes if we don't need to. So I am perfectly fine. I mean, this team is 3-0 and their last three games. Uh, they're doing it in bizarre ways. But guess what? Those are three brutal defenses, um, especially against the run. And that's what's so impressive about the fact that they've been able to run the ball against these guys. Carolina ranks number four against the run. Minnesota ranks number – sorry, Carolina's five. Minnesota's number four against the run they were able to run the ball on both of those teams to some extent. Now I'm looking at the New Orleans Saints. Now everybody's talking about, I mean, the, the, you're not going to find anybody in this industry, it seems like, who doesn't want to talk about how much improved this New Orleans Saints defense is. That's also at the tip of everybody's tongue. And so everybody assumes that it's going to be a slam dunk. Why even play the game? How in the world is Trubisky, who's throwing and completing four passes, going to go up against the Saints offense on the road with the Saints playing in their dome, throwing the ball all over the field on this defense, and their passing defense is so much better than it's been in the past. It shouldn't even bother playing the game. Um, I was on the Saints when they destroyed the Lions a couple of weeks ago. I, I laid the Saints there, and it wasn't even close until the bitter end when some turnovers and lack of third-down conversions in the fourth quarter brought the game to a closer final score. Um, but this week, I'm not going to be on the Saints. And the reason is simple. In that game, I felt like the Saints had a big edge running the football against this Lions defense, and I felt like Matthew Stafford in the pocket, not quite as healthy at that point in time. He was a little bit banged up. He was not going to have quite the mobility to move around and do what he needed to do to extend some plays. I think the Bears are going to be able to run the ball against this, 40, uh, against this New Orleans Saints defense. And here's why. If you look at their strength of schedule, they played the Packers last week. You almost have to throw that game out of the window. The Packers went totally run heavy because they never go run heavy. They have a new quarterback. They, who, they don't have Aaron Rodgers in there. So they're trying to run the ball a ton which is a strategy they're not used to doing. And the Saints were able to play through that and limit this offense to a great extent. But that game was pretty close throughout. That was a, that was a competitive game throughout. Um, and the Saints did get the cover ultimately at the very end. But the Packers were playing like a lot of people expected them to play, which is hard, tough-nosed football and uh, you know, nearly pulling out the outright upset. But apart from that, who have the uh, Saints played defensively terms of running offenses they played the Lions who who are not very good at running the football whatsoever got to such a massive hole that they couldn't really run the football the 
uh, Miami Dolphins over in London, we just seen the Miami Dolphins are also not good at running the football. Carolina, I don't know what the hell's happened to Carolina. This is my next investigatory piece to do is what's going on with Carolina's rushing offense. I know Khalil's not there, but this team is cannot run the football to save their life this year. So they played them. That's who they played the last four weeks. Teams that cannot run the football. And the two teams they played to start the season, when they did play Dalvin Cook, they lost that game outright 29-19. When they did play Tom Brady and the Patriots running offense, they lost that game outright 36-20. to I'm not actually suggesting that the Bears go in there and win the game outright. But I do think we've got a great spot for Jordan Howard to run the football effectively. If you look at the Saints' defensive numbers, yes, they are number six against the pass, but they're number, they're the fourth worst team against the run, and they've only played a much below average schedule of run offenses. I think it's a great opportunity to use a lot of formations, diversity in scheme, and for the Chicago Bears to run the football a ton against the Saints defense. I think even if they start trailing, they're going to run the ball. They're going to keep at the run game, regardless of the score in this game because they know that that's their best success in terms of moving the ball down the field. They're going to pass the ball off of that. And, and I do think that Trubisky is going to attempt more passes than he did last week. And guess what? Some of these are probably going to be successful. Like he's not going to be the worst quarterback in the world, but I think they're going to run the football a lot more here. And that's why I think when nobody wants to play a large road underdog um, in a spot against the Saints, nobody's going to want to start a running back in that situation. This is a time that you want to start this guy, and I think he could have some success. Yeah, excellent stuff. Goes hand-in-hand hand with the take given by Chris. Goes hand-in-hand hand with our earlier discussion on team tendency and, you know, just a great take overall on the Chicago Bears running attack here. Now, when you take a look at some defensive analytics that maybe could hold some people back, Chris, uh, give us some guys in week number eight that you think are going to be struggling a little bit more than usual. Yeah, so when we look at you know, roster construction on a slate, um, I think you always kind of have to look at, okay, you know, especially in tournaments, you're trying to get essentially you know, the top players at as cheap of a cost as possible or the top scores at that position um, and pay as little as possible as you can, which is why a lot of times you see people paying up for running back because it's just hard to get uh, a Le'Veon Bell or a Zeke-type score um, if those guys go off with any other running back. That running backs just don't get enough volume or just are not skilled enough to do that. Um, and I think you kind of see uh, to a certain degree at the tight end with, you know, you have Gronk and, and Zach Ertz, and they're just so far ahead of the pack in, in terms of, you know, what they've been able to do this season in terms of, you know, putting up monster games and, and being consistent for the most part. I know Gronk's had a couple of, of down games, but this week I think it's interesting because both the Los Angeles Chargers, Gronk's opponent, and the San Francisco 49ers, Ertz's opponent, rank in the top four in schedule-adjusted fantasy points allowed to tight ends. Uh, San Francisco is number one overall in tight end DVOA. Uh, the Chargers are 11th, but the Chargers held Travis Kelsey to one catch for one yard and Zach Ertz to five for 81. That was both their lowest outputs of the season in terms of fantasy um, for, for Kelsey and Gronk. And then San Francisco, I think we've talked about this before, they have Jaquiski Tart, really strong cover safety. Um, they held Greg Olson to two catches, 18 yards. Um, then they hold, held Jimmy Graham the next week to one catch for one yard. And Jason Witten last week, he needed a crazy one-handed uh, touchdown catch in the back of the end zone um, just to hit 50 yards, and, and he got the score, obviously. But um, not necessarily a great game for him, just a great individual play. So um, when, when you're kind of making alliance this week, I don't necessarily think that Gronk and Ertz are in that same boat as usual where you kind of can just feel comfortable throwing them in in any lineup 
um, and, and kind of counting on them to produce X amount of points. I, don't, I, don't, I think they still have their, their upside because they're great players and you always have to be careful of these tight end numbers for defenses because, you know, some of these elite tight ends just can play wide receiver and it kind of throws those numbers out, out the window. But um, this is a week where you just have to be aware that the value um, relative to most weeks for these two guys um, is not necessarily as high. Maybe it's a week where you don't necessarily want to just sprinkle them all around. Maybe you want to take a more um, concentrated approach where you kind of put them in in stacks or game stacks or something like that. But you're not just kind of sprinkling uh, Ertz and Kelsey. I mean, Ertz, excuse me, and Gronk at these high prices throughout all your lineups because um, the numbers are saying that they they might have um, go a little less than average, less little less production um, than they usually do. You know, it's hard to make a call like that on these guys. These guys are so good; they could have a good week. Any, any, against anyone, right? Like, that's just right. how the NFL works. But when you take a look from a roster construction standpoint, I think it's probably suboptimal to pay up at the tight end, especially on a site like DraftKings, uh, just given what the structure of pricing looks like around them. So uh, when you throw the matchup on top of it, it just makes it a little bit easier to go underweight or stay away from these guys, despite how good they are and the fact that they could absolutely ruin our week if they have uh, one of the weeks we know they can. So and overall, I think that's just fantastic. Uh, Warren, who do you got from a defensive perspective could be holding us back this week? Uh, well, uh, in the interest of time, I'll just say, you know, I don't like anybody on the Colts this week. I mean, <laughs> I, I really don't. I think the Bengals are going to come out pretty nasty defensively playing at home. Um, they came out nasty against the Cleveland Browns a few weeks back. Bontes Burfecht is back. Uh, he's going to set the tone for this defense. Uh, you could call him 30. You can call him every name in, in the book, but he's still going to play the same exact way. And I think it, it's just doesn't need to be further stated. I don't like anybody on the Colts this week. All right. So, and you talked earlier as far as the chalks concerned uh, on some guys in Cincinnati that you really like uh, from a popular play perspective, uh, anybody else on the chalk side, or do you care to say anything else about what's going on there in Cincinnati? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, uh, I really like LaShawn McCoy this week. Uh, playing at home against this Oakland Raiders defense. Um, look, the Raiders struggle to stop running backs out of the backfield, catching passes. They're going to struggle. If you look at LaShawn McCoy's strength of schedule so far this year, it, it's been absolutely brutal. And I was tweeting about this the other day. You know, I do my strength of schedule runs on Tuesday nights and, and start talking about them usually on Wednesday morning. And the Buffalo Bills run defense has gone up against a brutal schedule of opposing rushing offenses. That ended. Last week, obviously, when they played the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, came out of their bye week. I think they're going to have increased success moving forward. So I think the, it's definitely a, a buy sign on uh, LaShawn McCoy heading into the future. I like him there. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to say uh, about Le'Veon Bell up in Detroit, but we've talked a lot negatively about this overrated run game for the Detroit Lions with, with the loss of Nata back there. Um, you know, and, and we loved Mark Ingram heading into that New Orleans game, and he absolutely crushed there. So uh, it's hard to say that we wouldn't think that Le'Veon Bell is going to do some good things in this game. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, Ben Roethlisberger not making mistakes. Uh, but he certainly, you know, these guys are coming, some of the higher-priced running backs, but I think both are in pretty good situations. Yep, totally agree there. Chris, a lot of other chalk plays. You know, we, we mentioned the guys in Cincinnati. Any, anyone else? On the chalk side of things, you got any good takes on? Um, I mean, yeah, Cincinnati, that's kind of – we all know that. Um, I think the, the Eagles' defense special teams is interesting. I mean, San Francisco's 22nd in 
schedule adjusted fantasy points allowed to opposing defenses, um, especially you know on both sites really they're the highest priced defense. So I, I don't know what the ownership is going to be. It might be some rain in in that game. Um, Ronald Darby, one of their corners, might be back. Um, that that could help them out. I know they lost their, one of their linebackers, Hicks, but they have like a really ferocious uh, front seven still, um, especially on their defensive line um, that I think could give a, a rookie quarterback some problems, you know, getting in, getting in his face. Um, and if San Francisco wants to go run heavy, I think the Eagles um, can counter that too. So I don't really see too many avenues for um, the Eagles defense to have too bad of a game. Um, Mark Ingram, you know, again, you know, we've been talking about this ad nauseum, but, you know, I think this really the running backs in this game are, are who you want to target um, in this New Orleans Chicago game, because um, again, as Warren said, I think, I think the bears can have some success running, running the football against the saints. And I don't think the saints, um, you know, I think this pass defense for Chicago is better than people think. Um, I think both of these teams are just going to run the ball. Mark Ingram, 28 touches per game over his last two weeks, that would rank second in the NFL. Uh, over the whole season only Le'Veon Bell would have more so I think Ingram is a guy where he's still priced below that Bell Elliott McCoy but he's getting that workload of them and, and I mean he, he's not quite as talented as those guys but he's pretty talented in his own right and the Saints have a pretty efficient running game um, pretty much no matter the opponent um, they, they just tend to, 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 to do pretty well running the ball I mean when you have Drew Brees and the threat of that at quarterback that kind of does that for you you can never truly sell out against the Saints um, to stop the run. So I think Mark Ingram, you know, it's he's kind of, he's still in a good spot. Again, you know, we keep going back to every week. It's not quite uh, from an efficiency perspective, the matchup isn't quite as good as it was maybe say against Detroit, but the volume is there and the game script um, should be there as well. Yeah. And when you talk about San Francisco from the offensive line side of things, you mentioned the Eagles defense. It looks like we got a couple of guys banged up. Uh, Brandon Fusco uh, missed practice. So did Trent Brown. Uh, those two guys being out would not help them at all. And Joe Staley is still banged up despite the fact that he is practicing on a limited basis. So uh, looking pretty good there for the Eagles defense special teams in Philadelphia. Let's talk about some guys who are under the radar now. You've got uh, someone that I really hadn't put too much thought into here this week. Uh, give me the take here on what's going on with Atlanta. Yeah, so somebody I've really um, got kind of got on as I did my research process this week was Mohamed Sanu. And I think uh, Warren was talking about Sanu a little bit earlier. Um, and, you know, I really like Sanu in this matchup against the New York Jets defense. Now, first thing to know is that Sanu primarily plays out of the slot um, in three wide sets. So he overall, 62% of his snaps have been in the slot. He will play um, outside in their two wide sets uh, over Taylor Gabriel usually, which is good. Um, just for Sanu's, you know, maybe get an extra target here and there. But the thing to really notice about this matchup for Sanu is that the New York Jets defense is having problems at the nickel corner. Their outside corners, um, Mo Claiborne, um, Roberts have been playing pretty well, um, or at least not completely horribly. They've, they've, they've held up okay in coverage. However, um, Buster Screen, their nickel corner, who is already their weakest link at cornerback, He's in the concussion protocol, so we don't think he's going to play. Um, it's looking unlikely. They're, the backup nickel corner, Xavier Coleman, went on injured reserve. So now they – and Todd Bowles, you know, before this all happened, you know, he kind of was adamant about, you know, not moving somebody like Roberts um, to the inside. He's like, you know, these guys are outside corners. So, But now, because of all the injuries, 
they might be forced to move Daryl Roberts inside. And, you know, kind of reading some of the, the local reports out here in New York, and, you know, Daryl Roberts was essentially quoted as saying, I don't really know. He, he's getting reps on the inside in practice, obviously. And he's like, I don't really know the in, about the inside much. I don't really play inside much, so I couldn't really tell you. I'm not much of an inside corner. I play outside. So that doesn't sound good from a guy who um, might, might have to play, but this is, this is where the Jets are at this point. I mean, you know, cornerback depth is something that, as the season progresses, you really have to look at for teams. You know, I mentioned it with Tampa Bay. You know, when one corner goes down, it can kind of create this, this domino effect because now you're looking at a team playing their fourth corner, and, and cornerbacks get injured a lot during the game because they, they're involved in kind of these bang-bang plays in the secondary a lot. So even if they don't get injured for the whole game, a lot of times they can go out of the game for extended periods. Um, so now you're looking at a situation where the Jets down to their third nickel corner. If anything happens in the game, they're down another corner. So um, I think this is a really good matchup for Sanu. Now, um, if you go to uh, airyards.com, uh, Josh Hermsmeyer's site, uh, you know, he has a, a metric code weighted opportunity rating for wide receivers. It essentially um, looks at a, a wide receivers percentage of air yards and their percentage of overall team target market share. And it looks at uh, what, um, kind of uses a regression analysis to determine, um, you know, a rating of predictiveness of fantasy points. And, you know, Sanu's is, uh, he has a top 20, 0.53, that's top 25 in his four healthy games. Um, that's the same as people like Doug Baldwin um, and higher than Michael Crabtree, Larry Fitzgerald, Deshaun Jackson, Kelvin Benjamin, and Brandon Cooks. And essentially what that means is that, you know, given Sanu's air yardage uh, market share and his team target market share, he would be expected to be about that wide receiver 25 on the season in terms of his opportunity. Um, so um, I think you're going to have uh, in this game, you know, if Steve Sarkeesian, the one thing Steve Sarkeesian has been doing, even though they haven't been targeting Sanu necessarily downfield as much, is they have been targeting Sanu overall. Um, you know, he's been involved a little more probably even than last year in the offense. It's been Taylor Gabriel that's kind of taken a backseat. Um, more so and, and so maybe even the running backs in the passing game haven't quite caught as many passes so new has been heavily involved he's getting around 20 percent of the targets he actually leads the team in red zone targets by two despite missing a game and uh about a half of another game so i think you have a lot of different avenues for muhammad sanu to kind of have have a good game this week whether it's just because he's going to be a high volume target to take advantage of the matchup whether it's because he's going to get a, a few red zone targets um, or, or, or just or just because he's going to be able to be efficient in the targets he does have against this this uh, these backup corners and a Jets defense that overall is ranked 27th against uh, in schedule adjusted points against wide receivers. Yeah, good stuff there on Mohamed Sanu. Warren, when you take a look at a spot where we can find value on a DFS perspective this week, uh, where have you landed? Uh, well, it's actually a, a guy that I heard Chris mention earlier, and I'll go with Devin Funches down in yeah. Tampa Bay. The one lone concern that I have, of course, is the possible win. So I would definitely check that out if you guys are, you know, as, as the Sunday morning approaches. But you got a Bucks defense right now that ranks worst in the NFL in success rate to wide receivers. They're allowing 60% of passes that go to wide receivers to be graded out as successful. They're allowing 9.1 yards per attempt to wide receivers. Both these you can find in sharp football stats. That's 30th in the league. So they're obviously terrible defending wide receivers. And if you look at Funches, obviously we know that he's had a pretty good target share. But the other interesting thing about um, this team, granted the sample size is kind of small, it's a small season. They haven't been down in the red zone a ton. But when this team gets down in the red zone, 
They haven't yet targeted Funchess inside the five-yard line, but that's actually not a bad thing because Cam Newton's pretty terrible targeting receivers inside the five-yard line. He's actually better, twice as good in terms of his efficiency over the last couple of years, targeting guys from the six to the 10-yard line, like when they snap the ball from that area of the field, than he is when he throws the ball from, you know, the one to the five-yard line. He's just not quite as good up there against the end zone. They're usually running him or running back in those spots. And they're actually not targeting Funches down there, like in the close proximity. They're using him on these, either the fringe red zone targets or, you know, in the six to 10 yard uh, line of scrimmage. So there's some excellent opportunity. I mean, he's the most targeted wide receiver on the team in both of those locations from the six to the 10, as well as from the 11 to the 20. Um, I, I think he's got excellent potential in this matchup. Like I said, the only concern I have really is weather, but the Panthers are a team really have not had a lot of success running the ball. And, you know, I will say this one one thing that we haven't mentioned, but Chris did hit on something that'll take it to the next level is this pass rush from the Bucks, not very good. And that's Chris mentioned that. The thing that is really important there is I've never seen an NFL quarterback over the last few years more of a front runner than is Cam Newton. When things are going well for this guy, he is going to party it up with you and he's gonna dap you on the sidelines. He's gonna do everything <laughs> under the sun to show you that he's having a great time. But if things start going poorly for him early in the game, if he's getting hit, if he's getting pressured, I mean, th this guy just wants to slink off the stage. He wants to step aside from the where the spotlight's shining. He really does seem like he does not like being out there in the public eye when things aren't going that well. I mean, as evidence, some of his press conferences as well, where he'll just like jump off the stage if he gets asked a question that he doesn't really like. So um, my definition of a front runner is what he does. And uh, I think at this spot when he's not going to be getting hit and he's going to have time to throw the football and he's probably going to have some good success early in the game. These are the times when you're going to want to be on a Cam Newton um, or players on the Panthers who would benefit from Cam Newton having a good game. And Devin Funches is one of those. I think there's an excellent opportunity for Cam to have a good game here. And therefore, I, I think Funches stands as a primary beneficiary of that. Cam is definitely one of the most tiltable quarterbacks in the NFL. Just absolutely goes off the rails when things aren't going well. So that's a great point. I want to make note that according to Roto-Grinders ownership projections, Devin Funches uh, are going to be under 10% owned. And Calvin Benjamin is going to be at least double, maybe triple, what Devin Funches is going to be owned. So if you're looking for some uh, value from an ownership perspective, I think Funches might be a good call. Guys, that's going to do it for today's edition of Sharp DFS Analysis. Be sure to check out my stuff here on Roto-Grinders Premium. Check out Chris on 44.com. He is the senior DFS editor over there. And, of course, check out Warren, sharpfootballstats.com. I promise you it's an amazing site for research. And you can also check out sharpfootballanalysis.com if you want breakdowns, if you want uh, some gambling-related takes. Uh, Warren is definitely going to uh, give you some of the best analysis that you can find in the industry. Best of luck in all of your contests this week, guys. We'll be back in week number nine.